0: Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 114. This is your host, Peter Renton, co founder of Lendit and founder of Lend Academy. Today's episode is brought to you by Lendit Europe 2017, happening in London on October 9th and 10th. This will be Europe's largest international lending and fintech event of the year, with over a thousand people expected. Lendit Europe 2017 will pack more content and networking opportunities than ever before into two full days. This year's conference features over 150 speakers and one of the largest expo halls in Europe, with over 70 exhibitor booths. You can register now at lendit.com. We have a special guest on today's show. I'm delighted to welcome Greg Gibb. He is the CEO and co-chairman of Lufax. Now, if you haven't heard of Lufax, you're not paying attention to the Chinese market because they are one of the real leaders in China. In fact, I would argue they're one of the fintech leaders globally. They only began in 2012, but already in their last funding round, they had a valuation of $18 US dollars. So obviously, that's a great evaluation, I think, than any Western fintech company from anywhere in the world. And they've done this under the leadership of Greg Gibb. So I wanted to get Greg on the show, talk about how he's done it, how they're able to launch Lufax, how they're able to grow the business from initially just a peer-to-peer lending platform into a leading wealth management platform that operates not just in China today, but also in Singapore and is a truly global company. It was a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thank you. So, I want to get started by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. You are running a Chinese company and you have an American accent. And, uh, you know, I know that a lot of people, you know, would would be interested to hear how you sort of came to be in China and how you came to be running Lufax.
1: Sure. Well, it's a. It's really a long path. Uh, my, my, uh, I, <laughs> my, my plan was actually to start work in China back in uh, 1989, mm-hmm. uh, but it never happened because I ran into June 4th as a recent college graduate, uh, ended up being redirected right. to Hong Kong, uh, where I started work uh, there, uh, and that took me to Taipei several times, and Singapore and Hong Kong in between again, but basically in 2011... I was uh, done with work in Taipei and decided it was uh, time to try and give China another shot. And a friend of mine introduced me to Ping An, the chairman of Ping An. And that conversation uh, led to joining Ping An as the chief innovation officer. And within months of uh, taking that role, we had set up Lufax. And eventually, about the end of 2011, I, I jumped into Lufax full time.
0: Okay, so what was it that, you know, you came on as the chief innovation officer, obviously I imagine looking at all kinds of things, what made you kind of settle on LUFAX and what were you really trying to, what, what did you see the, as the opportunity?
1: Well, the, the, I guess it was a little bit broader in that sense. I joined Ping An in 2011 because it was clear to me that Ping An had, uh, you know, a huge platform and was unique in China as a large financial institution that was privately held and run in a very entrepreneurial way with a focus on on innovation. And so I felt, you know, as a foreigner coming into China, that, you know, Ping An was the right platform. And once I joined Ping An, one of the first things we did was a strategic review of what areas or businesses could Ping An enter that it wasn't already in, or what capabilities, tech, you know, from a technology perspective, could we add that would help... Ping An deepened its interaction with its already large customer base. And as we went through that process, we, at that point, Taobao was already growing very quickly in e commerce. We saw that, you know, consumer needs in China hadn't been met by traditional banks. And the chairman of Ping An had a vision that said if you look at the U.S., you know, most savings weren't staying in deposits and most corporate borrowings weren't, you know, coming from banks, they were coming from capital markets. And so, As we went through a review of the market here in China, we said, could we use technology? Could we use an online platform to build a bridge between those who needed funds and those who had funds? Uh, Or could we build a bridge between financial institutions who had assets and and people that were looking for investment opportunities? Because the market uh, back in 2011, it's still true today, uh, was really starved for a a broader range of good investment tools for, for consumers in the market.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we, sh- we should say too that the Ping An is uh, like it's, it's, it's an insurance company, but I know it has it obviously has many different divisions. So this was this was sort of done in the context right of of an insurance company looking for new business lines.
1: Is it was done right? in the context of an ins- of an insurance company that had grown into uh, Ping An Holdings. and had bank license, leasing businesses, securities, trust businesses, and all twenty six. Different financial licenses and the idea was at the time instead of trying to build another business where you own the end to end i.e you, you you create the product you own the distribution and everything is in-house if you will should we use an online platform to solve the problem that I mentioned before but then also created an open architecture that said look you know at the end of the day what we really care most about is being able to serve more clients and to increase the frequency of interaction with those clients. Who provides the product is is open. The best products probably come from the market as a whole rather than something you would create. So that was the vision is to create something new, take advantage of market trends, deepen the interaction with the customer base, but do it with an open platform architecture. In other words, to create... Some form of marketplace that would allow us to do that. Right, right.
0: And we should also point out to the listeners who are wondering how you're pulling this off. You actually do speak uh, fluent Mandarin, right? I have. I've actually seen you present in uh, English and in Mandarin, and it's always it's always a big crowd pleaser for the Chinese when you do that. So, how like how long have you been able to speak Mandarin?
1: I uh, as, as part of my studies, I went to uh, Middlebury, which has a language uh, program. And so I studied Chinese in college. Spent my junior year uh, in Taiwan and Beijing, and so I had that as a I've had that as a basis now for about 30 years. That's kind of uh, been quite helpful for my my career in Asia.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. So just on that, just as a aside, most of your conversations you have with your you know with your management and the, and the Ping An people are they, are they done in English or is it done in Mandarin?
1: I'm uh my day is about uh, 90 95 percent in Mandarin. After six PM, when my brain starts to wind down, I try to find staff who have better English capabilities. So most of them
0: <laughs> Right. Okay. So, you launched your peer-to-peer lending product. Uh, you launched with, you know, basically your, your first product was this peer-to-peer lending product. So, explain how that worked. Sort of the market you were going after, and uh, and how you were able to kind of get that up and running.
1: Well, when we first started, the idea would be was that we would create some form of broader fixed income market, uh, almost an asset securitization uh, marketplace. But uh, back in 2011 in China, there was really no legal framework that would allow us to do that. And so we literally spent months sorting through different ideas, working with lawyers to figure out what we could do that would be legal. And as we drilled down, we found that in China, there was this concept of the courts would honor a contract between two private individuals if one was making a loan to another, so we, we said, okay, here's a place that's smaller than we thought we, where we wanted to go, but at least it's a place where we can start, ping on having a lot of consumer data, having operated in consumer finance, having a bank uh, that issued a lot of credit cards, uh, had, having a large auto business that had a lot of data from that, uh, auto uh, insurance business had a lot of data from that. We knew that we could build a consumer finance uh, risk model on that data that would allow us to select potential borrowers uh, we knew that uh, Ping An had a consumer finance business, could also be a source of borrowers, and from there we just said, okay, let's use this uh, legal framework and connect the investor and borrower online. So when we started doing it, I guess we launched in the in the first quarter of 2012. We didn't actually know that what we were doing was called peer-to-peer. <laughs> uh, we, after doing it for about six months and then having had some time to breed, we started to look around the rest of the world and, uh, you know, found, you know, a company called Lending Club and a company called Prosper that had been doing it since 2006. And we're like, wow, that's great. You know, what we're doing is not totally crazy. Other people have done it. But we didn't know what we were doing in the beginning in the sense of what to call it.
0: So even in the Chinese market, you didn't sort of, you didn't come across, you know, Creditees and or Hongling or many of the other platforms?
1: Well, we knew that credit ease existed, but at the time, those platforms were really doing an an entirely offline model. Right. And so we didn't really look at them, per se, because we knew one of the rules that we followed from day one till today is that in terms of investors, you know, we never want to touch the ground. We want always to be online. We want all account opening, onboarding, everything uh, to be online because we believe that the opportunity is through an online platform you can lower costs a lot and you're then able to pass more return onto the investors, which then gives you a competitive advantage on the you know, creating a, a an investment platform concept. Sure,
0: sure. So but but you did on the on the borrower side, you know, my understanding was is is you had a you have a, a large offline network that you used to find borrowers. And just can you just talk a little bit about that side.
1: Sure. I mean, one of the things that gave us confidence that getting into the space, we could start to do something is that Ping An had been running a consumer finance business offline for probably about four or five years at that time. And Ping An, being quite different, had actually hired a team from Citibank out of Korea to build that business. So they already had been building up, they probably had about a couple hundred stores, uh, offline at that point, they were probably processing a couple hundred thousand borrowers per year. And one of the things we did when we, we kicked off the business was to cooperate with them because their borrowers were basically people they had, had found in the market that they had screened with uh, some credit data and they had added a credit insurance through Ping An where the loan ultimately came from a bank and then uh, Ping An insurance would make the bank good if a borrower didn't repay. So they started, they already had that network. Which we then helped uh, move online uh, from a, from the process of matching uh, the borrowers to investors. Okay,
0: okay, and so these are these are unsecured consumer loans.
1: These are unsecured consumer loans in the beginning. You know, the average size back then was probably about uh, five thousand U.S. dollars uh, maximum per borrower. Mm-hmm. And then after doing unsecured for about two years, we did move on to looking at uh, secured. We started serving. Small businesses where the small business owner, as an individual, owns several homes, uh, because a lot of small businesses in China don't have a, you know, didn't have a lot of good investment opportunities, so their their value was being stored in in property, and started offering secured loans. Probably about two years after we did unsecured.
0: Right, and just 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 one quick before we move on, one more quick question on that. Like how how did you how did you find the underwriting process when, you know, obviously with China doesn't have a, you know, a large credit bureau you know, covering the vast majority of the population like we have in the U.S. So how are you underwriting these borrowers?
1: So, I mean, we use multiple sources of data. Uh, I mean, the credit bureau in China itself is better than people think. It covers close to 400 million uh, people with reasonably good data uh, today. You know, obviously the population is 1.3, so the coverage is low compared to the U.S. But for those borrowers in primary, secondary cities, there's there's reasonably good coverage. But we also, over time, have been experimenting with a lot of uh, third-party uh, data, uh, so-called big data. We obviously look at application data uh, quite closely, and we have a bit of an advantage in that. Since Ping An, the, the entity today is called uh, Pu which has the network of stores to, to source borrowers, has been doing this for 10 years, and we merged them in about a year and a half ago is that, you know, they've got 10 years of behavioral data now that uh, is is probably the most powerful part of our credit model, which is as soon as we get a new applicant, we're able to take uh, their application data, the third-party data, and and compare, right, which is always the most powerful thing. And that's probably our biggest advantage when we do underwriting today. Right. But underwriting today is now augmented with uh, all kinds of other stuff, like uh, we do screen borrowers uh, through an online interview really over the mobile where if, if we regard them as being a little bit higher risk or if there's some data that is not as clear, we'll take them through an online interview. Uh, that interview will then be uh, recorded and using big data and facial scanning uh, will actually try and detect uh, potential uh, fraud, uh, lying, and the rest of it, which is uh, becoming a more powerful tool.
0: Okay. Okay. Cool. I want to move on now to the other parts of your business, because I know that you have expanded you know, significantly from uh, from those early days with that really that one uh, one business. So, can you can you just talk take us through the different business lines that Lufax has today?
1: So today we have about three main lines. So peer to peer itself. Then we have an entire fixed income wealth management business, which is working with uh, up to about three hundred institutions, where we work on effectively uh, securitizing assets from them. Uh, we screen the assets, we rate the assets, we put them on the platform. Those are then bought in a primary market and can also be traded in a secondary market. That's a very big part of our business today. The third line is that over time, our approach has become uh, you know, to try and serve all parts of the customer investment wallet. So we also have more than uh, 3,000 mutual funds uh, on the platform, we have all different forms of uh, insurance products on the platform. and as an extension of that recently, we opened up Singapore, which allows uh, global product to be to be provided there. So we now have virtually all all forms of investment products covering all classes of investment from fixed income, right on through to uh, equities, money market funds insurance products and the like
0: okay and this is all focused on the individual the individual investor
1: yeah i mean we do uh have on the platform capabilities and services for institutional uh, traders but what i just described is is very consumer focused right okay so these so you
0: basically you started off in in peer-to-peer and you got a whole bunch of investors i know through that is that still sort of a lead gen for your other products or are you now really going out there and sourcing investors with these with these other products as a primary offering?
1: The fixed income wealth management has proven to be very strong and also sourcing uh, new customers in part because of its, its volume uh, and its uh, speed. One of the problems with peer-to-peer is even though it's a great business, and offers a very investment, uh, a very attractive investment for investors in the, the scale of it is just smaller. Uh, so today, uh, about peer-to-peer as a source of new trading volume on a platform each month, it represents about 10, 10 percent. So we have found that other products, including money market, and depending on where the stock market is, uh, mutual funds, are also a source of, of, of uh, bringing in new platform, new customers.:
0: Okay, okay. So then you said you know we sat down it was just it was a week ago now or a bit over a week ago in Shanghai and you talked with my with my partner Jason and you you talked you mentioned that you know that wealth management is your core and, and, you're, and you're really focusing on creating a better investment experience for your investors. So how are you trying to do that?
1: Well we think that in China, but I guess it's true globally that you know what investors really want is to see a set of products, that is in line with their their investment goals, their risk appetite. And if you can do that in an online environment where you've got all of your uh, product ratings done reasonably well, where you've got a good KYC foundation to do a good recommendation and, and potential product matching with customer need, uh, that in an online environment, it's very easy. You can make it very transparent. Uh, you can make it very fast. And if you're doing it in a lower cost way, Uh, Hopefully, in the pass-through from product provider on through to investor, uh, you're able to give the investor a better return. Uh, One of the things in China that's been very important is that there's a lack of liquidity in virtually all investment products outside of uh, mutual funds. Mm -hmm. So for the wealth management fixed income offering, people may buy a product that has an initial duration of anywhere from six months to three years, But if they want to trade that on the platform, you know, because they have other investment, uh, better investment opportunities or whatever, they can go back and, and trade. So for us, better investing is, you know, better selection better transparency recommendation tools to get to the right product and then liquidity if they if they need it
0: right and so how and what about education because i know that we've there's been and i've i've read lots of different articles about you know the the average chinese investor you know isn't that sophisticated not mind you the average us investor isn't either but um I, I'm just curious about what role that plays because you know you're you're offering I mean even uh, mutual funds fixed income products these are the you know these need a little bit of an explanation so what are you doing around education?
1: so we do three things one is that just at a disclosure level for each product there's a rating that goes with it there's an introduction to the asset there's a highlight of the risks but I think what what's important is we have boiled that down to a five star rating system so that people know broadly what sort of risk category or what sort of risk level they're getting into. The second is we spent a lot of time developing our KYC where we really applied uh, on two dimensions to assess uh, customer investment need and, and risk tolerance. One is their, their level of income and, and two is their risk appetite. And we, we use our, our product rating and the combination of our KYC tools to actually suggest to customers what their range of investment should be. And we actually, we rate our investors on one to five, five being most aggressive. We also rate the products in terms of risk one to five. And a very conservative customer on our platform, let's say he's a one, can only buy a risk rating one or two amongst the safest uh, categories on the platform. If he tries to buy something that is beyond his, his KYC rating, we just basically Block it. It cannot be
0: done. Interesting. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit now about sort of the scale you're at. It sounds like what can you share as far as, you know, number of customers, your AUM, where are you at as far as the size of your business?
1: Sure. I mean, at the end of last year, which are the, the numbers we've reported publicly, we were at a registered number of 30 million. Investors with uh, just north of seven million active, which had invested through the platform, about uh, just north of uh, sixty billion U.S. dollars in in client assets.
0: Okay. That is a fair size, and I'm I'm sure you've you've grown since then. But I, I realize you you can't share uh, more than that. But how are you being impacted by the new, like the P2P lending regulations that came on that came in board, and uh, and sort of the the regulatory environment in general in in China? Has that been a a good thing for your business?
1: Well, I think like all uh, regulation, when you're the market leader, you know you've got to make adjustments to your business along with the industry, but long-term uh, regulation ends up creating probably a higher bar and certainly a healthier industry, which is good for us. The regulation that's gone on China up to now is really been in a couple parts. One part has been on, on peer-to-peer itself, which really hasn't had that much impact on our business. The One of the key parts of the P2P regulation is that the uh, total amount of loans that one borrower can take per platform was capped at 200,000 renminbi, or about 25,000 U.S., and we we had about 7% of our business, which was north of that cap, and 93%, which was within. So we just made some adjustments a couple months ago to fit with that. So for the peer-to-peer side, it's been reasonably aligned with what we've been building over the last uh, number of years, so not that much impact. The second area has really been all the requirements around being a distributor for fund products and for uh, insurance products. And there you have to have now in China very clearly a a distribution license either from uh, the insurance regulator or the securities regulator. And we applied and obtained those licenses over the last uh, year or two. So that's been fine for us, but it really has started to push out uh, a number of purely tech platforms that were distributing financial products. And, And that will continue to be, I think, quite stringent. Uh, the third area around regulation is all of the wealth management, all of the fixed income, and here the issue is around the definition of qualified investor and the minimum size of ticket uh, that you have to sell uh, to a qualified investor, and that regulation is still uh, shaping. It will probably go up and down a bit in terms of what the requirements are over the next six to 12 months. Where we've got. In China right now, overall, is a, a desire by the top regulators to really drive stability and reduce uh, the amount of leverage in the system. So there is going to be, I think, some impact uh, from that side. Uh, but again, I think once all of these things get worked out, you, you have the construct for a much clearer industry, a much healthier one. We obviously have a lot of problems in China. And I think that what you'll see is consolidation as a result of that. It's not going to be consolidation in terms of Companies merging, but probably, if you will, a, a lot of weeding out of, of smaller platforms that really haven't built the risk management capabilities, really haven't built the KYC capabilities.
0: Right, right. So your investors, like you know, we obviously have the the concept of accredited investors here in the U.S. And you know, there are certain inv- many investments that are not that are not available if you are not an accredited investor. So is that in China? Like the the seven million investors that are active on your platform, is this anybody's there any kind of asset limit or any kind of limit as far as who can invest?
1: Yeah, there is actually a number of different hurdles that we have put in place for investors. So one is depending on the outcome of their KYC in terms of risk appetite and risk absorption capability, only those customers who have gone through the KYC and have been rated to a certain level can buy certain products. And then um, there is, in the industry today, regulations around uh, total net assets, that you have to have to buy certain non-standard types of investments, minimum requirements on annual income at at an individual or family level. And we've been gathering that data over the years. So we think we're pretty well positioned to verify who's accredited investors those requirements come into place. What is going on in China at the same time is asset management as a theme. You know, there's asset management products created today under insurers, securities companies, banks, and so forth. And the standards are not the same because the regulators are different. And probably what we'll see in China over the next year or two is those standards will be unified under the direction of the the central bank. Uh, And that will create a much more clear playing field for wealth management as a whole in China. Mm -hmm. Okay. So
0: I do want to talk a little bit, you mentioned earlier that you launched in Singapore recently, and is that obviously that's going to be for people who are outside China? Um, but are you are you targeting Chinese who are offshore, or are you targeting anybody and anybody like native Singaporean or other people? Who are you targeting with that office?
1: I mean, this office is really, if you will, if I had to put a target, it is middle class investors from Asia. The it really taking the experience that we've had in China in terms of building up the entire infrastructure online. So that you can, in a, in a regulated environment like uh, Singapore, open customer accounts, do all the onboarding, all of the anti-money laundering, uh, and all the customer management online, and we we think we can do this now at, at quite a low cost. We we see that a lot of cross-border investing in Asia, that may be true around the world, has really only been possible for private banking customers. It's traditionally been a face-to-face model, which is quite costly, right. and therefore, it's only been available at the upper end. So our objective in Singapore is actually not to serve Singaporeans, per se, because the you know, market size is smaller. But if you look out over the next five to 10 years, you know some research has been done that says roughly half to two-thirds of all new wealth in the world uh, that's going to be created is going to be created from Asia, and about half of that new wealth is actually coming from the rising middle class. So that's our target group. It's those people who have overseas accounts already, who have US dollar accounts, who are looking to, you know, get better returns, who are looking to diversify, who are looking to support interests around kids' education overseas, or maybe buying a house overseas as well. So that will include Chinese investors who have accounts overseas, but also a number of Southeast Asian markets as the platform gets built up.
0: Right. So so you really focus on Asia? any long term plans for you know, for elsewhere, like, the, for instance, the U.S. Or, or other places like that?
1: No, I think we'll, we'll keep our, our focus on Asia for the, for the immediate future. You know, I think that the, the U.S. market, uh, some of the European markets, will be a very interesting source of product for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things in, in uh, launching Singapore is we're looking forward to working with a lot of the, the fintech players around the world who build some very interesting products. Who may not have the scale yet to come to Asia themselves, and we'd like to be kind of a, a platform of platforms in the into the in the sense that if we can get these companies, whether it's been in the area of robo, uh, it's in the area of P 2 P or other forms of uh, investment capability, uh, allowing them to come onto the platform so our customers can have access to that.
0: Okay, that's interesting. So, so that's a way for your customers to really get geographic diversity and obviously asset class diversity. So. So you are open for potential you know, international platforms to come talk to Lufax and, and get access to Chinese investors really through you.
1: I mean, absolutely. We think that, uh, you know, for really not just the Chinese investors, but all of the, of the middle class and we've done market research around the other Asian markets. There's a, you know, a lot of people are holding U.S. dollars who, you know, they have these investment needs uh, overseas. But they're not familiar with the uh, international markets. They're not ready to go to stock picking, and you know they're getting less than fifty basis points return. And if there's a way for them to get access to safe, transparent investments that can improve that in a reasonably easy way, uh, we think there's going to be a large demand. Yeah,
0: yeah, not surprising. We're almost out of time, but I, I have to ask you this question. There's been a lot of talk about the the Lufax IPO. I mean, your last funding round had your valuation over 18 billion US. So, do you have a, a timetable and a location in mind for your IPO?
1: Well, we've uh, we've done a lot of work. The the situation is we're basically prepared to go. We think the market opportunity is right, and you know, while we haven't set the final location, we haven't done a filing yet. Uh, certainly, a lot of our work has been done around Hong Kong, and in that, that's probably the likely outcome, but not uh, finalized yet. You know, we're ready to go when the timing is right, and for now, uh, that timing is really seen through the regulatory process here in China. We think that when international investors look at China and they look at FinTech, there's been so much noise uh, with some of the uh, fraud and stuff, and we really want to go to market when the regulatory framework is, is pretty laid down and the, and the story is clear without too much distraction. Right.
0: it makes sense. Okay, uh, last question then. So what, what are you working on today that personally gets you, gets you excited?
1: Well, I think, you know, one of the feelings I have after six years uh, doing this here in China uh, is that fintech in many ways is just getting going yeah you know, I think what's happened over the last six years is the you know the nature of access being transformed by mobile and uh, the the availability of increasing amounts of data has allowed us to set the foundations for providing services that are at a relatively low cost and and covering a broad number of products reasonably quickly. But I think if you look at what's happening uh, increasingly with data with AI, uh, I think we're going to be in a world over the next five years where, technology and data actually starts to change some of the nature of uh, finance. I mean, risk is still going to be the key, but how risk gets done, uh, how products get selected, how matching gets done, how wealth management gets done is going to be transformed. And I I don't know exactly what the answer is, but I think if you look at just the capacity and capability that's being created now, you know, being a FinTech player in a market like China has so much potential that, uh, you know, it's worth I think the hardest part of our jobs now is, is to right, make the right choices so it's not to get overstretched. But I think the amount of what can be done is, is going to be huge. Yeah,
0: indeed. Well, on that note, we'll have to leave it there. I really appreciate you coming on the show today, Greg.
1: Thanks very much, Peter.
0: Okay, we'll see you. All right. Just picking up on Greg's last point there, I'm also, I get very excited when I start to think about all of the advancements that's being made in AI and in analysis of data. We have, we have such masses of data today and we need advanced systems to be able to make sense of it but as companies begin to really develop these systems and implement them i feel like we are just scratching the surface of what we'll be able to do and we're talking about not just uh you know not just being able to underwrite in a far superior way in a in a quicker way instantly but talking about Providing a whole range of financial services to the consumer that is tailored just for their needs. I think it's going to be exciting to see how this unfolds. And, you know, and China is going to be leading the way here. And Lufax is really going to be leading the way in China. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I will catch you next time. Bye. This episode was sponsored by Lendit Europe 2017. Europe's largest international lending and fintech event. It will be held in London on October 9th and 10th of this year. To find out more and to register, just go to LendIt.com.